Hi everyone. Welcome back to China in the Caribbean podcast. In this episode, I am honored to be joined by Barbados Ambassador to the People's Republic of China, His Excellency Ambassador Francois Jackman. We discuss several major foreign policy and geopolitical themes centered on the Caribbean's diplomatic approach to China and the North Atlantic. As usual, I will include links to more information on the topics we discussed in the show notes. Thank you so much again for listening, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ambassador Chapman. Welcome to the podcast, Ambassador Jackman, and thank you so much for having this conversation. It's my pleasure, Rashid, and I, I want to start by thanking you for inviting me, and also by congratulating you for this excellent initiative, this podcast series, which I hope will last on and on, is really filling a, a gap in the intellectual and analytical market here in the Caribbean in respect of our relationship with China. And I really want to encourage you to keep going, to expand the scope of your subject matters, and to broaden,、uh, to keep broadening your guest lists. You've had some really outstanding guests so far. The podcasts have been really high quality, and as I say, you are making an important contribution to the public discourse and analysis of this、uh, increasingly important relationship. So, well done to you. Thank you very much, and I, I definitely do plan to do a lot more content expansion. I want to start with a foundational question: What would you consider to be the conceptualization of Barbados's post-independent foreign policy? Well, we always go back in in my profession in Barbados. We always go back to that seminal speech given by Errol Barrow. When Barbados was admitted to the United Nations in 1966, and it's a speech that's worth looking at、uh, in some detail. We often know it in Barbados and perhaps beyond as the "Satellites of None" speech, where、uh, Prime Minister Barrow、uh, set out some of the key principles of our foreign policy. That being, perhaps given the Cold War context of the time, the "Satellites of None" idea being perhaps the most Uh, well known, and it is an absolutely critical,、uh, very well,、uh, well crystallized idea,、uh, which has a, a very, a very、uh, well and well rooted historical meaning, as well as、uh, having proven the test of time by by remaining quite relevant to this to this day. There's another. There are several other key elements in in Prime Minister Barrow's. Speech、uh, to the UN, but one which is often overlooked and which I find really is equally critical,、uh, and that is he said that our foreign policy is a reflection of our domestic reality. In other words, the goals that we are seeking to achieve as a society, the values and objectives that we hold dear,、uh, as a small, emerging, developing society. Are those things which inform our international posture?、Uh, so, when you take these two ideas—that we will be on the one hand friends of all, 
uh, and satellites of none, and that, on the other hand, uh, our foreign posture will reflect our uh, national domestic goals and values. I think you have the two key ideas which have underpinned Barbadian foreign policy uh, since its uh, since its creation in 1966. Was the phrase "friends of all, satellites of none" a, a barrow invention? I, I know that other prime ministers in the region around that same time and also used that phrase quite a lot. Well, I, I believe it was originally Barrow's phrase, but it certainly uh, captured an idea which was prevalent across what in the 1960s was the decolonizing world, the world of countries that used to be colonies of metropolitan powers who were coming into their own as independent states and who were saying to the world uh, at the time it was the Cold War. It was a bipolar universe in which the United States and the Soviet Union were uh, confronting one another in cold but very hard terms. And most of the countries that came of age in those in those years uh, were saying to those two principal actors of the bipolar world, we don't want to have to choose. We want to be able to have relationships with the two of you, which do not prejudice our relationship with the other. And, and this was one of the, the, the beating principles, the beating heart of the non-aligned movement, which was formed in the 1950s. We also want to have a relationship amongst ourselves. Um, so I think Barrow's phrase is his own and, and is, is a Barbadian phrase, but it, it, it crystallizes and captures a much broader sentiment that uh, many across the developing world uh, would have felt in the 1960s and 70s. One could argue that the geopolitical system of the world has shifted since 1966. Do you think that the foreign policy basis still retains its salience? I would say that these are two principles around which uh, many ideas and actions can pivot so that while we have we have done different things over time, uh, those are the principles that have remained relevant and frankly have remained our guiding light. So I would say that they are not in any way obsolete. And in fact, if you think about uh, some of the key issues that we're confronted with today, the response to COVID-19, issues to do with equitable access to international finance, climate change, these are all issues which are spoken to by the idea that we should be friends of all but satellites of none, and that our foreign po policy must be a reflection of our national domestic interests. There is a particular orientation of Barbados' foreign policy where there is an outsized, at least in my interpretation, an outsized skew towards the US, the UK, and Canada. These are, of course, the farmer colonial ties and, at least at present, the largest tourism markets for Barbados. But I, I do wonder, is this outsized weight placed on these markets a 
consequence of the understanding that they should have this outsized weight? Or is it an example of, yes, the understanding of rebalancing towards other markets is important, but it's very hard to adjust ingrained foreign policy? Our principal traditional diplomatic commercial uh, partnerships are with North America and Western Europe. That comes from the history that we have inherited from our colonial past. And to this day, it reflects a substantive, generally positive reality in terms of what these relationships have allowed us to achieve over the years. So it's not a matter that these relationships are old and have run their course. It's a more a question that these are relationships which we have always had, we have always valued, um, have had, as all relationships do, their ups and downs, but they continue to be extremely important. At the same time, of course, given the fact that the world of 2021 is not the world of 1966, our foreign policy is uh, called upon by the changing circumstances to evolve. So, the fact that you and I are having this discussion today, uh, the fact that you are running a podcast on uh, China in the Caribbean is a sign that our foreign policy is evolving to reflect the new realities. Fifteen years ago, there was there would have been very little to talk about in terms of the Caribbean-China relationship, or I should say there would have been rather less to talk about than there is today. So I, I think we can, as as Richard Nixon said, we can do the two things. We can walk, which is to, to follow the metaphor, we can continue to have and maintain and strengthen the important relationships we have with our traditional partners. And we can chew gum at the same time. We can, and indeed we must, uh, uh, cause our foreign postures, our foreign policy, our foreign posture to evolve, to meet the changing circumstances, to develop new partnerships for example, with countries like China. And, of course, we will uh, move to our China conversation very soon. But before we do that, I want to emphasize the CARICOM aspect. For context, everyone, uh, the CARICOM is the Caribbean community. It's a regional organization of 15 states in the Caribbean, from Belize to Barbados, Jamaica to Guyana. And the rationale for this was twofold. In a very broad way, you have the internal rationale where small Caribbean countries do have very severe capacity constraints on even internal activities. But when you expand that into a regional platform, the capacity constraint loosens and you have more ability to get things done. And then on the external front, obviously having a 15-volt block moving into a large global organization like the UN, the WTO, or the OAS, it therefore moves the small Caribbean states into a much more influential position where negotiation can be done at a more strength-based level. By the same time, the CARICOM is known, at least in the Caribbean, to have these fairly substantial um, defects when it comes to negotiation and internal coordination. So from your perspective, how relevant is the CARICOM as a tool to advance Barbados' foreign policy posture globally? It is still as relevant. It is absolutely vital. 
it is a an important uh, and reactive, responsive uh, foreign policy tool for all of the members of the Caribbean community. And thinking in in broad terms, certainly there are areas where the members of the Caribbean community diverge on foreign policy. And sometimes these can be quite visible areas. But this is like perhaps the tip of the iceberg. The nine-tenths of the iceberg beneath uh, is an iceberg in which we are coordinated, we are consulting, and we are largely on the same page. So is the Caribbean community foreign policy coordination uh, system perfect? No, it's not. Does it give us all that we want? No, it doesn't. But it is an essential tool uh, of Barbados's foreign policy, and I believe the foreign policy uh, of all of the Caribbean member states. I mean, even if you think about one of the one of the other important regional integration uh, movements in the world, the European Union, which is in many ways far better resourced, far more institutionally uh, strong, uh, and of course relies on uh, membership of countries that have much more uh, diplomatic uh, resources available to them. Even they struggle with big issues, with difficult issues. So quite naturally, there will be moments where the Caribbean community members struggle with difficult issues. But it would be interesting to to conduct some sort of data survey to see you know, what is the percentage of times that... CARICOM countries align on foreign policy versus the, the percentage of times that we don't, I would have no hesitation in saying that the overwhelming majority of times we do align, and therefore that makes the CARICOM mechanism uh, both successful and important. And even more so as we are thinking about the future uh, in, a, in a universe, in an international system which perhaps is less stable than it has been in the past, where there are new important actors uh, on the international stage with whom we wish to have a relationship, with whom we wish to develop a relationship. And of course, in international relations, it's almost always better uh, when you're doing it as a group than when you're on your own. This is true for small countries like Barbados, and it's true for large countries like the United States or the United Kingdom. So as we look back, I think it's fair to say that the Caribbean community tool has been a vital tool for us, and it's going to be even more important as we look forward. A substantial point of difference in terms of CARICOM and the U.S. has been Cuba, and this has been the case for quite some time now. I think um, listeners would be curious to hear about the Caribbean's perspective of foreign policy with Cuba. Well, Cuba has been, for Barbados and, and many other countries in the Caribbean, uh, a vital partner for a long time. Uh, it's no secret that there are scores of Cuban medical personnel in Barbados, as we speak, helping Barbados to confront the public health challenges posed by the pandemic. Uh, it's no secret that uh, Barbados's views 
and the views of the Caribbean, and to be candid, the overwhelming majority of countries in the world diverge with the views of uh, the United States on how Cuba should be treated uh, within the, the United Nations system, within the international system. Uh, it's no secret, and this was one of, I think, the, the, the really truly great moments of Barbadian foreign policy history, that in 1972, uh, in a, a coordinated move, Barbados, Trinidad and Tobago, Guyana and Jamaica established diplomatic relations with Cuba at a time where uh, the Cold War was raging, where Cuba was uh, considered by our American friends to be uh, a, a country with which it had a problematic relationship. But our view was that Cuba is part of the Caribbean. Uh, Cuba is uh, a country with which we have bonds of culture, family, uh, affinities that go back uh, uh, decades, if not centuries. Uh, and in a, in, in a way, it's a no-brainer. Uh, and within the Caribbean itself, uh, the issue of our relationship with Cuba is is a perfectly routine one, and I think this is understood uh, by uh, by our friends, uh, whoever they may be. Uh, there, I think it's difficult to underestimate uh, the the uh, the support that Cuba has provided to Barbados uh, in this pandemic moment, and uh, Prime Minister Motley's conversation with President Diaz Canel. Uh, not a few weeks ago, underlines the importance that we we attach to this. It's no secret, uh, and it's not going to change. And now moving towards the more China-centric conversation, Barbados opened its embassy in Beijing in 2010, which is about almost 40 years or so after uh, China opened an embassy in Barbados. So I'm wondering, what exactly... 2010 was so auspicious for this movement. What was the the variables that happened to push Barbados to finally open embassy in China? I, there's no simple one one cause answer to your question, but I think what occurred in 2010 was the coming together of a number of factors which had been uh, brewing for some time. I think since. The beginning of the 2000s, uh, China's accession to the WTO, uh, the uh, major revisions being undertaken to the international trading system, uh, China's emergence as a major international trading partner. It was becoming clear uh, that having an enhanced relationship for Barbados with China was uh, a necessity. Uh, it was something, and this is, I think, something quite interesting. It was something on which both major political parties agreed, because th if I remember correctly, uh, the opening of a mission, of a diplomatic mission in Beijing, featured in both the manifestos of both the major political parties that ran in the 2008 elections. And so it came as no surprise when, having said that they would do it, uh, after the time it takes to get together the, the administrative and financial means to do it, 
Um, it occurred in, in 2010. So I would really say that it was a fairly natural progression in our in, in our foreign policy, in the development of our foreign policy, and in our, in our own thrust to diversify our diplomatic networks. You're right, it could have happened in 2008, could have happened in 2012. As it happens, the circumstances uh, were came together in 2010 to make it happen then. But was there weight placed on any particular aspect, you know, like trade, diplomacy, political rebalancing, did the financial crisis have some role to play from uh, 08? Uh, it was all of those things. China was uh, coming towards the top of our list of major trading partners. I think it was at 22 or 23 at the beginning of the 2000s. It's now number three or four, depending on how you look at it. And it was clear back then that uh, this was a country with whom our trading links were growing and would continue to grow. Uh, it was also, and this was certainly something that motivated motivated the opening of the embassy, it was also clearly emerging as a significant market uh, for goods and services which we thought uh, Barbados and other Caribbean countries would be able to sell uh, to China. So I think those, those were two important elements which... Uh, um, motivated the opening of the mission uh, in Beijing, as well, of course, as the kind of the general geopolitical uh, circumstances. For some time now, Barbados has been in its foreign policy looking to diversify its diplomatic relationships. Uh, China has been for a long time since we established diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China in 1977, had been a good friend, a a dependable and loyal supporter uh, of things we were trying to do. And it seemed like, I think, a perfectly natural next step to take in our relationship. Were you involved in the embassy opening? I was indeed. I was the charge uh, ah. who went in 2009 to do the groundwork and to welcome our first resident ambassador, who uh, was a former prime minister, Sir Lloyd Erskine Sandiford. And I mean, his choice alone will tell you uh, the importance that Barbados attached to that uh, relationship. It was the first time, I believe, the first and only time that Barbados has ever sent a former prime minister to be a head of diplomatic mission. You couldn't want a clearer signal that this is a mission to which the country attaches the highest importance. Is there, is there anything particularly interesting about that early period that you wanted to share? Well, I'll say that it was a moment... Uh, in in China's economic development and uh, kind of diplomatic and geopolitical outreach, which was, I think, quite special. Uh, it was on the on the back of the two thousand eight uh, Summer Olympics, which were hosted in Beijing, where uh, you know China was uh, showing a desire and indeed a, a very successful uh, means of welcoming the world into China. It was on the back of China's going global strategy in which it too was seeking to capitalize on the extraordinary economic, domestic economic development that was going on to diversify its own commercial and diplomatic relations. Uh, 2010 specifically was the year where uh, Shanghai hosted one of the major international expos and Barbados and CARICOM 
participated in that expo in a major way. So it was really a, a, a moment, a period of great uh, uh, energy. And in the post, in the wake of the 2007-2008 financial uh, this debacle, which, which swept in particular uh, the Western financial system, it was a way of showing the world that there were ways of uh, spurring economic development and international relations uh, beyond those difficult times. So I would say it was a period of great optimism uh, on all sides. I think the first time I heard anyone seriously talk about China in a foreign policy or economic way in Barbados was when I heard your presentation at the annual Central Bank of Barbados conference. I think this was 2015 or 2014, perhaps. And you argued that Barbados should pivot or rebalance towards China. I always thought it was pretty interesting. I mean, that's actually what got me along the idea of discussing China in the first place in the Caribbean all, all that time. But could you explain to us what did you mean by a pivot to China in the, con in the context of the Caribbean? Well, you, we started off by talking about our traditional relationships with uh, the North, let's call it the North Atlantic world, North America and Western Europe. That's a relationship that has a great deal of economic, uh, commercial, trade substance, but it also has uh, cultural ties, um, you know, uh, affinities to do with family, uh, common values, uh, shared history, uh, and the like. So that we we understand Western Europe and North America, and they understand us in a way which is born of a long association. It's been an association uh, in in some you know at some periods of our history, literally soaked in blood, and and domination, uh, and the most violent forms of asymmetry. But it's been a, an association nonetheless, so that we have an understanding of how this relationship works, uh, both in its positive and in its negative aspects. And my argument about the pivot to China, and I use the word pivot, it wasn't my term, it was a, a term I borrowed from from our American friends who were talking more or less about at the same time about their own pivot or rebalancing towards Asia. It's a slightly different idea, but th the broader idea is that, so we have this mature, well-established set of relations with with partners that we've known for a long time. We need to keep those. Those are important. At the same time, the world is changing. China and Asia more broadly, but we're talking about China, so let's be specific about China. China is coming up as an increasingly important trading partner. As I said before, they moved from 25 to number three or number four. We have to look at this and understand what this means for our own foreign policy and its consequences on our own domestic situation. So the idea of a pivot was not so much that we should stop looking in one place and start looking in another place, but that we should start looking more broadly and begin to develop an understanding of what this new emerging relationship with China uh, meant for us, meant for them, and critically, 
how best we could contribute towards shaping this relationship in a way which would be beneficial to us. That was really the under the underlying argument of that paper, and honestly, it's uh, I think its arguments uh, remain valid today. So when people hear that, and when I say people, I mean the North Atlantic policy circles and think tankers. When they hear that small countries are attempting to do more business with China, they have this sentiment that is quoted as they are breaking away, unquote, from the North America system or North Atlantic, so the UK and Europe as well. I wonder if when Barbados decided to open its 2010 embassy in Beijing that there was any sentiment in the foreign office that this would have some negative externality on the UK, Canadian or US relationship. No, no. There was never there was never any idea that we would have to sacrifice one for the other. Uh that remains the case today. Uh, and it is, I think, uh, it would be a real, uh, a real problem, a, a kind of almost systemic problem, if in those relationships we came to a point where we were required to make a choice. And in fact, in last week's uh, edition of the American magazine Foreign Policy. There's a piece I can't remember who wrote it, but there's a piece on on this very issue, speaking about Latin America, uh, the United States, and China. It doesn't really address the Caribbean as often is the case, but but frankly, uh, it is equally applicable to uh, to the Caribbean. So it was never within the contemplation of our policymakers that uh, rebalancing uh, our diplomatic network to. Uh, uh, develop relations with China and Asia more broadly would have a negative effect on our relations with our traditional partners. I think it's fair to say that we believe quite strongly that it should be possible. It is possible. It is, in fact, the case that we have uh, good relations, important relations with, with both. And this comes back to that founding principle of our foreign policy we started talking about, at the beginning of our discussion, which is that we uh, should be, we can be, and that we are friends of all, but satellites of none. Uh, some Small states face a problem of power asymmetries. And the Caribbean, of course, is by no means a stranger to that particular problem. What's your view of the Caribbean institutions in regards to the ability to withstand any and all forms of malign influence? Well, this comes back to our, our discussion about the, the importance and the value and the success of the, of the Caribbean, of, of CARICOM and its, and its institutions. I, I think the, the short and simple answer to your question is yes. Uh, despite the asymmetry, and as you say, we are, we are familiar with the, the consequences of asymmetry, despite the asymmetry, uh, it is the case now, I would argue, and it's certainly, uh, I think it, it will be the case going forward, that our regional institutions, that our regional coordination, whether they're formal or informal, because the informal uh, 
networks are also very critical, uh, are in fact uh, doing what they ought to do. They are giving us the foundations for uh, stronger, uh, less asymmetric relations with our major partners. Now, no one who works in or who has worked in the CARICOM foreign policy environment, whether that person is from Barbados, Belize, Guyana, or Trinidad and Tobago, will say to you, yes, it works great and it couldn't be better. Nobody will say that. Uh, but I think we will all say that uh, it plays a vital role in uh, developing our foreign po our, our posture with regard to our new and traditional partners, and that in many instances, uh, it has been able to channel the relationship in extremely positive ways. And really, I think our, our regional institutions uh, are some of the least appreciated, uh, but most successful examples of both their the, the effect of regional integration within the region, but also in terms of our relationship uh, with foreign partners. Let me give you a simple example. Uh, SEDIMA, the Caribbean Disaster Emergency Management uh, Agency, uh, does what it says it does in the title. But what it also does, and this is incredibly important, in particular in moments of of uh, extreme uh, disaster and uh, you know, when countries are facing real problems, it becomes a single point of contact for uh, foreign interlocutors. So it is able to coordinate with our American partners, our Chinese partners, with partners in the international, uh, amongst the international organizations, the provision of support, assistance, and aid. If that were not the case, we would have all of the partners talking to all 15 CARICOM member countries individually, uh, serially, and that would be a, a, a recipe for disaster. Another excellent example is the Caribbean Regional Public Health Agency, CARFA, which has been doing a yeoman's service in coordinating a regional public policy response to this extraordinarily uh, difficult moment that we're having now with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. The Caribbean Development Bank uh, essentially takes in funds from uh, donor countries, larger non-borrowing member countries um, from outside of the Caribbean and channels it within the region to our different member uh, Caribbean borrowing member countries. These are institutions that are vital in shoring up the regional integration movement on the one hand and acting as uh, powerful, uh, credible interlocutors for our foreign partners. And I should point out that China is a non-borrowing member of the Caribbean Development Bank. I think a lot of international listeners may not be aware of that. Regarding the One China Policy and its interpretation, CARICOM is in a very unique place, I'd say. Of the 14 states globally that recognize Taiwan as the ROC, five of that 14 exist in CARICOM. Or, to interpret differently, 
there are five of the 15 CARICOM states recognized ROC. So I wonder if this, if this brings up a material sticking point when you have these CARICOM-level foreign policy conversations. I would say that uh, notwithstanding this divergence that you've described, uh, the, those of us in the Caribbean who have uh, diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China have as a group, and I think it's nine members of CARICOM in total, uh, have as a group with the People's Republic of China established a number of dialogue and coordination mechanisms. Uh, we have a dialogue and coordination mechanism on foreign policy, the Caribbean-China consultations, which meets at the, le the level of foreign minister or vice minister every other year. We have a, a similar uh, mechanism which focuses on trade and economic cooperation. We've been having discussions uh, uh, sort of using offshoots of those mechanisms recently on COVID. Um, we have had discussions through the China CELAC mechanism, the China, which is the China, uh, Latin American and Caribbean uh, community uh, mechanism. So I, I would say that we have been able to establish enough institutional mechanisms to allow for a coordinated and uh, uh, interactive uh, flow of discussion between those of us in the Caribbean who have relations with the PRC and the PRC. Again, as was as I was saying before about the Caribbean institutions, these are not perfect. Uh, I think neither side would look at them and say, yes, they have produced everything that we have wanted. But they have produced a lot of, of good things. Uh, their continuation uh, is essential as a means of uh, ensuring that the channels for dialogue and interaction continue. Uh, and I believe... I think as this pandemic is causing most of us in most sectors to think things through um, in new ways and resetting old ways of doing things, I am quite certain that these institutions are also going to benefit from uh, kind of renewed energy coming out of our need to address collectively uh, both the the effects, the sort of the the public health effects of the pandemic, as well as the long-term uh, economic consequences. Is there a similar subgrouping of coordination mechanisms for the uh, ROC-recognized Caribbean countries that you know of? That's a good question, and I don't know. Ah, okay. And if I remember correctly, I believe it was St. Vincent and the Grandines that attended the last CELAC forum. So while St. Vincent is a uh, a partner of Taiwan and the CELAC forum is an official PRC platform, St. Vincent, because it's still in the region, decides, hey, we still want to participate and go to the CELAC forum as well. So it does indicate something that there's no brick wall per se between the countries in the region that have a split in recognition where I think outside the region, you may think of it as a complete brick wall. I, I think that's a very good point. You are clearly a very keen observer of these things. And in the China CELAC configuration, uh, China has been very clear 
SELAC has been very clear that it is a discussion, a cooperation mechanism between all of the countries that are members of SELAC and China. Um, so that there again is an example of where, as you said, uh, there has not been a brick wall where perhaps one might have thought that there would be. And and to me, I think this is a sign of uh, this is a good this is a good thing. This is a sign that uh, we can keep moving forward uh, together. A few years ago, there was a a curious article by Stratfor, that's the geopolitical consulting firm. They wrote an article about how the Caribbean has faded from the geopolitical scene. And in their argument, the idea was, well, for centuries, the Caribbean was the center of the geopolitics, geopolitics in the New World, but now it's at the periphery of the New World in terms of geopolitics. And I suppose now with China and soon-to-be other Asian powers re-entering, or in some cases entering the Caribbean for the first time, that model perhaps might have to be adjusted. Uh, that being said, I do wonder if you have an opinion on this interpretation of the Caribbean's geopolitics from the center to periphery, and perhaps back to the center. Yeah, I think this is an interesting idea, uh, but I, I would... With all due respect to the academic world, and I say this because I'd like to make a point after about the importance of academic uh, research and thinking on these topics. With all due respect to the academic world, I, I don't think this is really an issue in the either the reality of uh, how diplomacy is practiced or indeed the kind of the long-term, medium-term uh, issues with which the Caribbean is faced. And we we have the good fortune that by and large, and I, this is certainly true for Barbados, I think we can say more broadly it's true for the member states of the Caribbean community. We have by and large been successful at being friends of all and satellites of none. And our partners whether they be in the north or the south, in the east or the west, have recognized this. And they value this in Barbados because it says to them that what we say today about our commitments and our values will be true tomorrow. So that you can have, you can depend on this relationship. You may not always like what we do, but we will be uh, true to the principles that you know, that we have set out. So using using that idea and taking the Caribbean, the, the members of the Caribbean community more broadly, I think that we can continue to have uh, valuable, uh, interactive, uh, and mutually beneficial relations with our traditional partners and with our emerging partners. Barbados right now is in the process of opening new diplomatic missions in new parts of the world where we have never been before. Uh, this is a sign that uh, we understand uh, that it is important to diversify our diplomatic networks. It's important to diversify our commercial networks. It's important to find new markets for our goods and services, new partners to create new opportunities for both sides. So I'm not in the slightest bit troubled by 
whether or not we are up or down in the geopolitical stakes. We have our friends, our traditional friends. We have strong new friends. We are looking to develop uh, further into the international system. And I believe that uh, by the strength of our values, the, the modest resources that we have to put behind them, uh, by the strength of the regional coordination, of the regional identity that we have within the Caribbean, uh, we have a, a really, we have many reasons to be optimistic about the future. That is not to say that uh, the road ahead is going to be an easy road. That is obviously not going to be the case. And the, the challenges that have been brought up by the pandemic uh, have, uh, are, are extraordinary and tragic in and of themselves but have also served to tease out a number of the longer-term systemic issues that countries like Barbados, that small island developing states, low-lying coastal states, uh, and developing states of all kinds have faced uh, in the international system and have been campaigning to have addressed. Uh, and so we are challenged by the present environment to say to the international community, this system needs reform in order to to address the needs of all of its members, not just the most powerful, those with the hardest power, but all of us. Uh, and the pandemic, as I said, has exacerbated issues, for example, uh, to do with inequality within states, but among states. And Prime Minister Motley uh, and all of her predecessors going back the quarter century that I've been in the diplomatic business have been saying, for example, that the GDP per capita uh, measurement tool is not a good tool for countries like ours. We need to find a better tool. We have been talking about various kinds of vulnerability indices, tools that genuinely measure both the wealth that we have, but reflect the vulnerabilities uh, created by the unique circumstances uh, that we face as small island developing states and low-lying coastal states. Um, so it is a tough road ahead, but we have many opportunities uh, which we have to fight for. Um, and I think that uh, this, the emergence of new uh, diplomatic partnerships, uh, new commercial partnerships, uh, is one of the best ways that we can uh, find to achieve those goals. Thank you. And is there any theme or topic you would like to emphasize as we close our conversation? Uh, I, I'd really perhaps like to emphasize uh, the importance of the regional dimension uh, uh, of our relationship with, with China, but more broadly speaking, the importance of our regional institutions in our interactions with the rest of the world. Uh, Individually, we all struggle to make a, an impact on the diplomatic scene. Our missions are small, our embassies, uh, our foreign ministries are small, you know. But when we come together, uh, it is universally recognized that there is a powerful, respected CARICOM voice on the international scene. And the, the more we can have it heard, uh, the louder it can be 
uh, it can be made, uh, the greater the number of partners with which, as a Caribbean group, we can interact, of the better this will be for Barbados as an individual country, uh, for the individual members of, of the Caribbean community, but also for the community as a whole. So it's really important, I think, uh, as we think about Barbados's foreign policy, really to think of it as part of a Caribbean CARICOM foreign policy, uh, because when the two come together, it, invariably they are stronger. Uh, that is not to say that there are moments where uh, our national interest will require us to go on our own, uh, and that is right and proper, but wherever we can, uh, we always look to go uh, into the international system with our Caribbean brothers and sisters, because invariably uh, we are stronger when we do it together. Thank you very much, Ambassador Jackman. This has been a very valuable conversation. Thanks for the invitation, Rashid. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, and really, I want, to, I want to congratulate you again for the great work that you're doing. I want to encourage you to keep the podcast series going, to broaden the scope of your, your investigations into the, the world of China-Caribbean relations. And uh, if there's anything that I can do to help you in that endeavor, please consider, consider me to be at your service in this regard. And one last thing before I go, you can follow me on Twitter at Rashid Guo, R-A-S-H-E-E-D-G-U-O. Of course, I have a link in the show notes to learn more about China-Caribbean relations. 